Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. This is Tracy L. Slatten, and Independent Artists and Thinkers is back. So I'm so happy to welcome you to the show today. We've got a great show lined up for you. I'm really happy and so grateful that so many people are listening to this show live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the interviews because I certainly am. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality, and this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. I think today's guest is really a splendid example of that. Some upcoming guests on January 5th, researching psychologist and professor at Colorado State University, Jennifer Harmon, will be on talking about her work and her TEDx talk. And on January 10th, recording artist Rochelle Royale and director-producer TJ Scott will be on talking about the making of a star. So these will be some fun episodes. Do turn on. Do tune in. (laughs) Keep checking the Facebook page or the website to see who will be on the show. And uh, a thought I want to just put out there into the ethers because I've been thinking it, and that's this. Every spiritual act is an act of defiance in a materialistic world. So please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me, and the live chat is open, so feel free to chat and ask questions. Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSatin.com, and that's Tracy, T-R-A-C-I. I also would like to let you know about some author events that I'll be doing, and I hope to see you there. I will do an author talk at the Hamilton Grange Library on January 28th, 2017 at 3 p.m. And I will do an author talk at the Riverside Library in New York City on February 11th, 2017 at 2 p.m. I will be a guest on The Librarian, Authors on the Air Global Radio Network with host Tabitha Pope on Thursday, February 16th at 9 p.m. So that will be fun. 
Um, and I also want to let you know that the Independent Artist and Thinker podcasts are available on Blueberry and on Stitcher, as well as on the iTunes podcast channel. I'm trying to figure out how to get them uploaded to my YouTube channel, but there are lots of ways to listen. I am so delighted and honored today to have as our guest, documentary maker, Marky Hancock. Marky Hancock is a documentary filmmaker working in New York City. She has produced documentaries on issues of religion and LGBT identities, race and education, artists and their art. Her projects focusing on education include Off-Track Classroom Privilege for All, Echoes of Brown, produced with CUNY professor Michelle Fine, and 40 Years Later, Now Can We Talk, produced with Barnard professor Leanne Bell and available at Teachers College Press. In addition, she produced and directed a documentary about the preeminent 20th century American philosopher of education, Exclusions and Awakenings, The Life of Maxine Green, which is distributed by Alexander Street Press. She directed the autobiographical documentary, Born Again, about the difficulties of coming out from a born-again fundamentalist upbringing, which is distributed by Seventh Art Releasing. Queers in the Kingdom exposes the deep historical roots of evangelical Bible-based homophobia in the United States through the stories of survivors of Christian colleges, distributed by Alexander Street Press. Her recent documentary, Feral Love, features New York Philharmonic violinist, violist Dorian Rents, who cares for feral cats in the bowels of New York City's railroad tunnels while performing on the world's greatest music stages. Feral Love questions who matters and what counts as the film follows Dorian's passions for music and feral cats. Clips of Marky's work are available at www.hancockproductions.com. Marky, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tracy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm so grateful you're here. Um, we had fun meeting at a musical event, like what was it, a few weeks ago or so, and so I was so happy that we reconnected and that we can, um, you could be on the show. Exactly, it's one of those, uh, one of those chance encounters, or maybe not so chance, that leads to a really nice blossoming of things. Exactly. Well, yeah. you have an unusual, you have an unusual and fascinating career, and there's a lot to talk about. But I'd like to start with my opening, my usual opening question for my guests. Because this situates listeners into who you are and what you're about. And it's a big question, Marky, so don't feel like you have to answer the whole thing or answer it in any specific way. Take this question, run with it, and make it your question. Okay. So that I'm scared. is. <laughs> don't be scared. Okay. I'm holding your hand virtually through the uh, computer ether. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> How did you begin your journey? And what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be involved with documentary making? Were art, education, and documentaries a major presence in your home when you were growing up? When you were growing up, what did you think you would be? Start with your childhood and lead up to now. <laughs> you packaged that. That wasn't a question. That was a sandwich of questions. <laughs> That was a triple decker with lots of layers in between. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was a lot, and uh, those sandwiches are really hard to eat too because they're so thick. Um, what was it? Read the first part again, or say the first part again. How did, How did you, begin? you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive 
at the place where you are currently. Okay. I usually think of my journey as mostly a lot of undoing. And I think the undoing has led to the process of becoming. I'm sure they're inextricable, but it felt like a lot of undoing. And that is primarily because, as you mentioned, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, um, which is oftentimes referred to as Pennsylvania. And I grew up in a profoundly religious, fundamentalist, evangelical, born-again, Republican, conservative Christian family. And it really was all of those things. And so I really grew up in the cocoon of religion, and that has left an indelible mark despite all these years of undoing. I mean, precisely because of that intense religion, the mark almost has been the undoing, the constant unspiraling. Um, so I think that I think that's the start. I think I I sort of grew up kind of blanketed, and I I followed the. I really believed it too. It wasn't you know it was a thorough indoctrination. Um, one of the things for which I am so grateful is that at least we went to public schools. I really worry about kids that are either homeschooled in those extreme religious environments or kids who are sent to religious schools. In my case, it would be a Christian school, but whatever the fundamentalist religion is, if you are, that's just another layer of cocooning, which makes it that much harder to get out of and to really find your true self. So I'm really grateful that at the time of my growing up, Christian schools were not um, were not as big as they are now, and homeschooling wasn't as as uh, big as it is now. So that that helped me a lot. But um, we went to church regularly, and, and much of this is in my documentary, Born Again, which was simultaneously also part of the undoing and the becoming. Um, and then I went from there to a Christian college where my mother had gone to and my brother had gone to. And then from the Christian college, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary to sort of continue the tradition. And then finally, it got to the point where I, I kind of made a break. Not I, I did make a break, and I ended up in in Europe for a few years sort of being lost and trying to find myself. And that was well, probably... Well, let me ask you. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, so was there a moment when the light bulb went on over your head when you said, I am unique? And how long did it take for you to say, to go from I am unique and to I am great, I am okay and fine and great with being unique? I don't know if there was a moment um because coming out from under that, I think it was small flickers along the way. I don't know if there was ever, you know, and maybe I'm I'm reacting because that's that's almost like the type of conversion experience that you 
that you live through when you're in a religious household that believes in, in a conversion experience. So I think I'm mistrustful of those kinds of moments. I think they can happen for other people, and I'm sure they have, but I don't know if that happened for me. I think it was a long, slow, gradual unwinding. Um, And I don't know, I also don't know, unique probably wouldn't have been the first thing that hit, that, that, that would have happened. I think the first thing that would have happened was, oh, I can do this and I'm not going to hell. So I don't think, I I think unique was a long way away. Mm -hmm. And I think if I am unique, it's probably just because I survived, (laughs) I survived a religious upbringing and there are a lot of people who've done that. So um, I don't know if I had that big aha moment. Is that a disappointing answer? For you, it was an evolution into being who you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it had to be because the indoctrination was so thorough. So to break away from that in in a in a it can never happen in a moment. And so, when did you know you were going to be doing documentaries? Mm. That too was a really that was that was a little bit more serendipitous. That was, um, you know, you you go to you go to religious school and the the one thing that you're interested in doing in my situation is God's will. Um, and so you're not really looking so much for what you want to do, but you're looking for your calling or you're looking for what God wants you to do. And so it take that even takes a really long time to think that it's okay to do what you want to do and to find that. So there was, there was a period when I was really, really, really at a loss. Like, wow, what do I do? I'm not going to become a minister. I'm not going to follow on my seminary training. I'm not, I'm certainly not going to be a missionary. I'm not going to be a chaplain. I'm not necessarily going to be a do-gooder and in the service of some cause. And the only thing that I remember I had an, a, a sort of a sort of kind of mentor and she said, "Well, what would you like to do?" And I and she asked me to please shut my eyes, which usually again, I'm I'm a little suspicious of that kind of thing just because I grew up in a religious kind of spirit. You know, I shut my eyes many times a day in prayer. So that type of thing, but I went along with it because I trusted her. So I shut my eyes, we're sitting on her couch, And she said, well, what would you like to do? And that was a really profound question for me because desire isn't always a positive thing. It's actually often antithetical to what you think God wants you to do. She said, what would you like to do? And in that moment, I was able to relax and think, well, what would I want to do? And it just seemed like a big blank slate. And I'm in my middle 20s, late 20s at this point. I'm thinking, wow, what would I want to do? The first thing that popped into my mind was I had attended a film festival for about a week. And it was the Berlin International Film Festival. And I just thought it was amazing. And I loved everything I saw and thought, wow, this is fantastic. And I said, well, I, I think I, I would like to make films. I really enjoyed they, that. Really was powerful to see all these films. And so then the second thing that this mentor type person did was she said, okay, let's go with that. And she got up and picked up the phone and called 
Columbia College, which is in Chicago, not Columbia University here, but Columbia College in Chicago, which actually has a very good film program. She got me an interview a couple days later. I went to the interview. I applied. I got in, and I started in film school. That's cool. Yeah, it's stayed with me, and I'm, I'm very grateful to her for that moment, always will be, and it was kind of a nice two-prong lesson. Like, not only did she create a space where I could have a vision, but then she also acted on it, and that really was the next step that I needed to. And so it was it was, it was, was a good lesson in a lot of ways. Like, I would be nice to sort of, you know, I keep that in mind with other people too. It's one thing to... Mm-hmm offer a suggestion, but then to help them take that first step in realizing it. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Yeah, when you can, right, right. When you can. Yeah. Well, let's right. talk about your most recent film about feral cats. How did you come to make this film? Why is it important? Uh, feral, feral Love, I was, that was also sort of, um, sort of incidental i was walking the dogs and it was on the um it was in our neighborhood on the upper west side of manhattan and there's we have two sort of difficult rescue dogs and we take them to this dog park where there aren't a lot of other dogs and i would see this woman every morning <clears throat> excuse me every morning she would very early come down with bags full of cat food and feed these feral cats kind of in the in the back underneath the highway and I'd see her go in I'd see her come out and religiously and I had no idea she sort of has an oversized raincoat and these bags of cat food and your first impression you know especially early in the morning is okay there's a crazy cat lady and who knows she could even be homeless <laughs> but she was so she was so disciplined about it that you kind of thought well you know, there was a lot of preparation involved with, you know, she would have water and wet food and dry food. It was very elaborate ritual. Ritual. So I thought, well, I don't know about being homeless, but this is definitely the definition of crazy cat lady. And and it's such a scenic, urban area down in Riverside Park, underneath these railroad tracks. It, it It's just... Every time I go down there, even to this day, there's something about it that it's it really has an urban beauty to it. So I was always attracted to this and to her and to seeing her do this and who you know. And it just starts to you you ask yourself all these questions, which which is probably how every project starts. Like who is she? What is she doing? Why is she doing this? And so finally, and I always thought you know maybe there's a story here, maybe there's a documentary here. So. Over time, I started to talk to her, and then she said, well, you know, I'm I'm going on tour very soon, and so I have to get somebody to feed the cats. I usually pay the doorman. I'm like, going on tour. This is, this is getting interesting. Where are you going? Well, mm-hmm. I have to go to uh, – we're going to Vienna and uh, Berlin and Munich, and so thinking, okay, she really is either totally crazy or there's something serious going on. So, of course, it turns out, I said, what do you do? She's a violist in the New York Philharmonic and had been for 40 years. She's still with the Philharmonic wow. now. So at, at that point, I kind of thought, okay, there's an interesting story here. She's not, she's not just a crazy cat lady, which also 
you know, even if she were a crazy cat lady, what would be so bad about that? You know, you also think that, like, well, she's harming no one. She's taking care of helpless creatures. But you you nonetheless have this stereotype, a crazy cat person, and then the fact that she's this world-class elite musician, I thought this is this is certainly worth exploring. So that that's the that's the long answer to your question. That's a wonderful answer. <laughs> Thank you. So can, can you talk about your process in making this film? And is that what you look for? Like when you go to make a film, are you looking for an interesting story, a story that moves you, a story that inspires you? Yes, it has to be a story. It, it ha- well, first of all, there has to be a story there, and you still don't even know. You think, well you know, okay, this is interesting. She plays for the Philharmonic and she cares for feral cats, but that doesn't make a story. So it really, it has to happen over time. It ha- And then usually it does take a long time. Most, docu- most feature-length documentaries, at least for me and probably most documentarians, are a labor of love that involve anywhere from three to five years. And it has to hold your interest. You You have to, it has to keep presenting questions that, yield interesting answers and Mm. there also has to be uh there has to be a good a good chemistry i was thinking of this recently that you know many documentaries are social issue documentaries and they usually revolve around a cause and recently i was thinking you know it's just as much chemistry as cause and you have to really, it might even be more. It might be more about the chemistry than the cause. And usually the chemistry is rooted in relationship and connection, and that's the best way into a cause anyway. So I, I'm sort of more and more seeing how that's so important in the telling of any story or the making of any film. There has to be, there has to be that connection to sustain it for that period of time. And I think that's what... That's what makes the issues interesting. Otherwise, you you write a book. You know, you you write an academic book about an issue. But I think for a film, mm. especially to have emotional impact, there has to be there has to be that emotional element, which involves connectivity, which involves connection, affinity, a shared sensibility, or at least an understood sensibility. And so, you know, over time, that developed between. Um, the, our protagonist in the film, who's Dorian Renz, and I really enjoyed getting to know her. And the film sort of does that. It was almost like as I, the filmmaker, got to know her, you, the viewer, get to know her too. So it was very much a, a parallel process that was happening. And I think I think the viewers can feel that in the piece. I think they, the slow unveiling of who Dorian is and her relationship to these feral cats and turns into a relationship with us and that's that inspired me inspired me the whole time through the project that's cool so i haven't seen the film yet but um what was your process in making it did you go down and film her taking care of these cats yes exactly i would i would follow her she would um you know i sort of became the crazy cat lady too because i'd say okay i'll meet you at 7 a.m and it was a harsh harsh bitter cold winter but i would meet her and uh follow her journey feeding the cats and the cats need care and it sort of tells the story of the cats too because she ends up i can't give anything away for any potential viewers out there but um 
they don't all stay in the tunnel at a certain point in their elderly lives. And it also, you know, through caring for the cats and understanding her work in the Philharmonic, ultimately the more she told me about her life and about playing viola at this, you know, esteemed orchestra, um, I found her story really compelling and beautiful. And, you know, I guess that's the thing about chemistry, too, because she was willing for it to be told. And mm-hmm. I got, you know, images of her, and then, you know, just really beautiful things happened along the way. Like six members of the Philharmonic agreed to perform the score for the film. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it's really, you know, so the documentary is filled with just gorgeous music by the Philharmonic musicians, and we um, filmed them performing these beautiful pieces. So the music almost becomes its own character. So it's this, you know, I think it's a beautiful film that kind of weaves together the life of cats and the worlds of music and these musicians and this, this person's story who came from Oklahoma and ascended into the great world-class music stages, ascended to the, you know, New York Philharmonic. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's your, in your bio, it says feral love questions who matters and what counts as the film follows Dorian's passion. So what are some of those answers for you who matters and what counts? Well, those are the questions that the film made me ask all along the way. Like, who's going to care about her feral cat colony? You know, why do, why do they matter? And for me, anyway, making the film was just a, a broadening of my perspective. The fact that, you know, Dorian doesn't make any distinction between playing with literally all of the world's musical greats on every stage in the world and trudging down under the highways of New York City every morning at 7 a.m. to feed feral cats. There's no distinction for her between playing with Leonard Bernstein and feeding her cats. So that I just... person. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And, you know, it's so easy to put a hierarchy on what we do and who we are and am I good enough, am I less than, am I performing well enough? You know, she's a a performer. And in the end, it's it's not those performances that matter, but these acts of love and acts of Mm -hmm. kindness toward these creatures that also can't really give a lot back. They're not helping her become a better viola player. Um, Are they able to be affectionate towards her? She can't when the, with most feral cats, which I learned all of this, if you're, if you're caring for a feral colony or, or caring for a feral cat, you oftentimes you cannot because they're feral. So they, they don't want to be touched. They'll, they will, they will lash out at you. And that's sort of a part of the film too. She's like, I can't even touch them. And wow. then, you know, as it progresses and they get more elderly, you 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 do see that with one in particular she's able to. But for, you know, 10 or 11 years, she never touched these animals that she dutifully fed every morning, never touching them. It's such a, it's such a, it sounds like such a story of like pure, you know, like a pure kindness, 
get, receiving nothing back, and like this pure kindness of giving to a creature, a fellow creature on the earth. Right. I think you're right, Tracy. I th- and, I, and she sort of talks about that, too, that, you know, there's not much they can do, and it is just a pure act of love. And she even says at one point, she says, you know, people say to me, why are you doing this? You could be helping children. You could be helping. And she says, you know, I think it's a really profound life. line. She says, you can't choose what your loves are. Mm. And I, I love these animals. And none of us really do choose, you know, it's, it's, I think you can grow into things and increase your appreciation, but, you know, you can, why spend all the time accounting for it, you know? Oh, why why not just, why not just, you know, take the pleasure of it? And, and she says, I love these animals and I want to do it. And, and there's no calculation involved. You know, she says in her, in her business, it's very competitive. It's very, um, you know, who's better, who's, you know, you can only imagine. It's like playing for a yeah, professional sports musical, team. It's the most elite musical stage. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know, she says there are no calculations with these animals. I've made a, I've made a commitment to doing it, and I'm just doing it. That's so there's really some, there cool. is something pure in that. There's something really kind of unquestioning, and there is a freedom in that. And it would be mm-hmm. nice, to, it would be nice to embrace it more. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Well, I'm going to take, we're about halfway through our show, so I'm just going to take 30 seconds. I warned you beforehand, I have a 30-second commercial for my book. Great. So I'm just going to play it right now, okay? Please. When you find an author you love, you read everything they publish. International best-selling author Tracy L. Slatton is one of those writers. Her book Immortal is a rags-to-riches-to-burnt-at-the-stake story of an orphan boy in Renaissance Florence. Broken is the story of a fallen angel in Nazi-occupied Paris and her award-winning romantic paranormal dystopian after-book series. Also, her bittersweet sci-fi romantic comedy, The Love of My Other Life. Read one and you will be hooked. Find all of her books at TracyLSlatton.com. Marky, are you here? I sure am. Yes. So that's my my thirty second commercial for my books. Hopefully, <clears throat> I love it. Are, I have I have this? to read them. I have to start to engage in them. I I welcome your engagement. Thank so, you. Um, exactly. But you know, I was just thinking, Tracy. I mean, in many ways, you're doing this interesting project. It's not like, you know, you're you're taking on in some ways all of these sort of stories and histories of different people's journeys it's its own way of of giving back to the arts well you know i'm fascinated by people's creativity and i'm fascinated by um journeys of unusual thinkers and i i find that there is absolutely no commonality in race creed color gender gender preference anything you know socioeconomic background the commonality I find is um, ingenuity. Hmm. Uh, it, it's a kind of like openness and questioning and ingenuity, willingness to, you know, it's creativity. And it's just, it's so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And you, you, in doing this, you find that it transcends all of our differences. I do. I find that bridges can be built through creativity, that, no matter where people are, you know, there are some exceptions, obviously, but mostly what I find in dealing and talking to lots of, you know, partly I've met a lot of artists through my husband and 
Um, but in talking to artists, musicians, people who are really good at the arts in some way or another, whatever it is, I find that they can always build a bridge to other artists because they kind of get it. We're, hmm. The journey is similar. You know, we're all kind of on Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. We've right. all heard the call, and it has cast us out of our home. And, it, you know, and it cast us, taken us to the underworld, taken us to the above world. So I think it's, it's the, you know, this is sort of my interest is these the bridges that can be built through creativity and how, you know, Marky is this really an interesting person who's doing this really cool, interesting thing. You're a model. There are people out there who want to live a more open life, a more creative life, and you're modeling something for them. You're well, demonstrating for them how to do it. Thank you. You too. Thank you. All, uh, all of us. Right. Right. All of us. All of yeah. Us. Yeah. So I'm also really interested in your kind of your ideas about education because it's in your bio. It talks how you're interested in issues of education. Yep. <clears throat> I started. So who was Maxine Green? I don't know about her. Right. She. Uh, she was an educational philosopher, and she taught up at Teachers College, Columbia University. And I actually, I never finished film school, ironically. Well, maybe not ironically, but, well, I guess ironically. Anyway, I, but I did get a Master's of Education, and I became a public school teacher, and I taught high school. And because I had done film work, um, I would teach a video class to high school kids, which was hugely popular and successful, and I really learned a lot from the students, and I think they enjoyed the sort of non-traditional class that they could take with me. Um, And in getting my Master's of Education, she was one of the few, she was probably the only uh, philosopher of education who was a woman, and I just found her writing to be transformative. And she's in that old progressive education mode that unfortunately exists only in pockets around us today. And she was sort of in that John Dewey tradition of the student discovering themselves through their learning and the student leading themselves into their into their education and certainly nothing like what we have today. So as I was learning to be a teacher, she was actually her writing and her way of thinking was actually teaching me also how to be a student and she was really instructive in teaching me how to think for myself and how to be my own person, which was so integral to my education. And that is the philosophy, actually, that a lot of people today would just roll their eyes at and say, yeah, 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 how'd you do in the standardized test? And learning how to do well on tests has nothing to do with learning uh, who you are. Education, they would say, is not about becoming, but it's about um, producing. So Maxine Green was the antithesis of all of that. And 
that whole way of thinking, as I said, is sort of out of favor today. So anyway, she made a huge impact on me when I was getting my master's of education and as I was beginning my short-lived teacher's career, and that's pretty much what I thought and how I taught in the classroom. Then when I came to New York City and I realized, wow, Teachers College, it's right here, and she, she was... I met her, and I just thought she should be a documentary, and she really had an, a, a profound impact on my life, and she she really taught me a lot, and I know she influenced thousands and thousands of, of uh, not just teachers, but lots of students who went through teacher's college, whether to teach or not, and so that was... Well, you know, that was, I, as, as the mother of four daughters... You know, three one's in medical school, one's applying to graduate school, one's in college, and then a little one who's in sixth grade. You know, I worry about our the education system. And um, my daughters have attended amazing, wonderful schools. But you know, I went to college early. I went to Yale, and I spent a lot of time sitting on rocks, staring up into the sky. Mm. And I don't think any kid who's doing that now is going to get into Yale. And mm. that concerns me because that was the birth of me being a novelist. Mm. Is sitting on a rock outside in the cold, in the warm, staring into the sky, looking at trees and daydreaming. And there's mm. something really enriching that gave birth to stories that have that read that are still rattling around in my cranium, you know, or mm. still resounding in my soul, I guess a better way to put it. But um I, I had good test scores and, and I had extracurriculars. But the stakes have become so high for getting into the elite colleges that I think very few kids these days who get into Yale, Harvard, Princeton, some of these most elite schools, they're not getting the opportunity to do what I did that made me who I am, which is, you know, sit and daydream. Right. And I'm, I'm concerned because these kids, most of them, you know, when you look at the kids who get into to these schools, they've already, like, invented a cure for cancer and... <laughs> You know, they've, they've created nuclear fission and a thermos, and they've done all this stuff, and they're, like, 18 years old, and they haven't sat still to do nothing. Right. And, I, and I agree. And at the same time, I wanted my daughters to go to good schools, and I certainly, um, you know, put them into paths where they had good extracurriculars and they were very busy. And, of course, we live in the city, so they didn't get a lot of opportunity, except at summer camp, to go sit on a a tree stump and imagine things, but yeah. I'm concerned. I am concerned that there's too much emphasis on production and not enough on that kind of inner development that right. you seem to be talking about. Right. No, no, that's it. That's a beautiful image. I love that image of you sitting on a rock, staring up at the sky and the clouds or staring at nothing. Or I, I think that's, I think it's hard for anybody to do these days. And I still, I think it's so, regenerative and necessary and I think it's really hard for us to do it really hard for us to do it and it's you're right that's a beautiful and you think well how could that daydreaming doing nothing possibly lead to you being such a prolific author and that's the that's how that that's really interesting that the genesis of all of your own productivity is actually in originated in a state of, of just sort of pure being. Yes, that's a great way to put it. And to this day, especially as I've gotten older, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but as I begin to understand my own process, 
and the source within me that is the wellspring for my creativity. If I find myself daydreaming, man, I'll push back from my desk, put my feet up on my desk and just let it rip. Wow, I'm that's like, nice. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend the next half hour following this line of thought because I don't know where it's gonna lead me, but I'm willing to follow it. Wow, that's good. That's good. You can give yourself permission to do that and trust that that's where the the seed of creativity lies, as opposed to you know pushing, pushing, you know, staying at the desk, thinking, oh, I, you know, that that kind of constant work but you're actually not nothing good's coming of it really so that's that's great i would like i could use more of that myself okay i give you permission marky (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate thank you (laughs) is that the kind of is this the kind of thinking that maxine green was doing when you talk about inner development um you know she was a uh she was an existentialist, which is also, you know, probably considered old school. So she would, you know, probably say that the act of being, the act of, you know, recognizing oneself, that's where knowledge begins. And it doesn't begin with the with the curriculum or the standardized test it doesn't begin she she certainly one of her one of her mottos was it's not the answers it's the questions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's that's where all that's where learning starts and then she I would say that. it's not the answers question that's where learning starts yeah 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 so and that that process of becoming for her and for someone like a John Dewey that process of becoming oneself is what leads one to learn. The the desire to know oneself pushes you out into the world to know the world around you. And you know, that line of thinking is is it's so sad that it's you know, it'll it'll come back. There that all comes in waves and that mm-hmm. is the old school progressive way of thinking about education and now we've gone the complete opposite way and I think it will run its course and we'll get back to that, I hope. Um, but we're certainly not there now. Well, let me just go back. You said that she was an inspiration for you. Who are some of your other inspirations? Who has inspired you? Um, well, I love the filmmaker, uh, Agnes Varda. Um, I love all of her films and all of her documentaries. I, if I could make my films get close to hers, I would be so happy. Um, you know, I've been really inspired by feminism. I'm old enough to be of that generation that it was a really, really important movement for me, especially coming from a religious upbringing um, where women are really subservient, like twofold subservient, you know, first to God and then to their husbands or the church. You know, the women are always the bride of the church. Um, They're never the groom, (laughs) at least in evangelical Christianity. So feminism was a big a big inspiration for me. Um, 
I don't know, I guess I'm I'm tending to think more about movements than I am individual people. You know, I think Black Lives Matter is so important, um, really important for our, specifically for our country. Um, what are some of the major challenges you've faced in your work thus far? What are some of the rewards and what were the detours? You know, the challenges, I don't know, it might be the same for you. I don't know. The, the challenges, you know, it's hard enough to make a film, but it's even harder to get it out there. And we're such a media-saturated world right now. There is so much product. So it's really, really hard to, I find, to push it out there, to, you know, to find the audience and then to trust that your work will find the audience. And that, that can be discouraging. That can be really hard to, you know, to not only raise the money and make the film, but then to, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot more now to navigate in terms of all the outlets, which is, which is good, but it's also you're as responsible for your audit for finding your audience as you are for making your product, and sometimes that um, that has proved really challenging for me. And you know, the flip side of that is it does find its it does find its audience, and it just you know you sort of. You're sort of resigned to believing in what you're doing even more because you 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 really can't control a lot of it, and so you just kind of have to believe in it and push it out there. And you know, and the beauty of it is, you meet these interesting people, and you really you dig deep in yourself because it's as much about them as it is about you. You know what what mm-hmm. interests me in this. So there's a real pleasure in that. And then it is. There's nothing like having people watch your work and and appreciate it. You know, that's always a great reward. Yeah. So, when someone but, I don't know. Connect, you, what's that? When someone connects to your film and they say to you, this really moved me, is that, that sort of the reward for you, one of the rewards? That That is one of the rewards. And there are a lot of rewards in making it, too. You're like, oh, that's how it comes together. Or, oh, you know, like I, I was never certain that the cats would. I wasn't sure, like in Feral Love, well, what, what kind of, are the cats really going to play a role? Are, are people really going to be interested in these feral cats? And in the end, the lives of the cats, I believe, in the audience matter as much as the life of Dorian. And that, that was a beautiful thing to see. And it was it was, you know, the the cats in this weird way sort of led me through the film and and created this narrative arc, and that was that was very satisfying. And it was sort of also the point of the film, feral love. You know, these cats, you end up loving them as much as you do her, and that was that just sort of underscored the message and in this really nice way. So I mean, all of those things, discovering those things along the way, really. That's hugely satisfying, hugely satisfying. How have you had to think outside the box in order to be successful? Well, you have to, first of all, redefine what success is. And I think that's the first thing to think outside of the box on is how am I going to define success? Because if you let it be defined 
externally by what's out there, you will be a failure. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing. That's the first way to think outside of the box is what, how, how will I define success for myself? And that word is so loaded that maybe it's not even the right word. And everybody, I think, has to come up with their own de- definition or their own, their own, you know, what, what is satisfying for me? What do I need to feel good about what I do? What's going to, what's going to motivate me? What interests me? And these are all those questions sort of coming back full circle. These are all the questions that Maxine says leads us on our path toward knowledge. And those are the questions that you just keep asking for your, for your career. What do I, who do I want to be? What do I want to become? Because, of course, it's never ending. And when you stop asking the questions, then it, then it really has reached an end. And so I think, I think it's a constant thinking outside of the box and not letting the box define you. But, and, you know, even the word success you bristle at, you think, well, I'm not Ken Burns or I'm not, you know, and those are the, you know, those are the, those are the criteria. Those external standards are what will stop you in your work. And that's like, well, why, why do I, I don't want to be that anyway. And who am I? So turning that off, turning off that, those judgmental external voices of this is what success success looks like and then defining it for yourself that's the and what are some of the moments when you've had are there times you felt to yourself okay I feel successful now what are some of those times I think seeing you know seeing films really come to life and realizing that they have really, you know, you're sort of most often like you know, you know you're always you're always working with a blank page and mm-hmm. and then to, you know, slowly see them filled and have it take on its own life and its own message and to see it realized. I think that's you know, you you then you start to feel successful. Like, oh, there it is. It now it exists outside of me. It's it's real, and people are seeing it. And I think that feels good when you you know three years later when you say, aha, I thought there was something there when I saw that crazy <laughs> woman feeding those cats. <laughs> <laughs> We've got about nine minutes left. Are there? Do you have any advice for young documentary makers or people who want to go into this field? That's such a that's such a good question. Um, I think it's hard, you know, and I don't know because it's such a different such a different game than when I started it so in some ways I think young people are they probably have better advice for themselves than I do but you know I I really think I just flash back to that mentor sitting me down on her couch in her living room and saying shut your eyes and what would you like to do what gives you pleasure 
And I think, you know, being able to get to that point in all of our lives because it just, you know, maybe that's your point of sitting on that rock and staring out at the blue sky or just getting to that place of who am I and what do I want and what pleases me, what do I desire to do. I think it's so hard to get there. And we need to ground ourselves in that space because it really is a a rejuvenating, refreshing space to be in that that takes us back to kind of our original source, our original motivation. So I don't know. I think think that can help all of us. I think if young people can find that and get rid of the expectations or get rid of the, you know, sometimes you allow yourself to think it and then you immediately shut it down. Well, I can't do that. I can't afford that. How could I make that happen? You know, I, okay, I want to do it, but then all of a sudden you're faced with that blank page whatever the pursuit might be. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I I guess I would go back to what worked for me and maybe what where you started of finding what really your desires are, which is connected to who you are, and that's the first step. That's the first step. And then finding your way out there and then making your life from that. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's not specific to filmmakers, but... Is that a story you might tell at some point um, using someone you might meet or, you know, with a story about that, you know, what you're talking about, about going back to what gives you pleasure? Is that a story you might try to tell at some point with your documentaries? No, I'm hoping you're going to write it and then I can read it and then... (laughs) (laughs) Well played, Marky. Well played. <laughs> I don't know. I never thought about it, Tracy. Maybe we. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'll, I'm gonna go back to you sitting on that rock. We'll start there and we'll film that. And <laughs> that's very abstract. I don't know. That's a. That's a hard thing. You know. How do you. How do you. What you know? What images come from that? And then you know you have that interesting thing of that is almost a state of pure being, and that doesn't usually make a cinematic image. That's the trick. But that's where the story is. So you never know. You never know. Right. Right. Yeah. What's a fun fact about you that people might not know? We've got about six minutes left. So what's a fun fact about you that people might not know? Um, I am a, in my mind, I am on the professional tennis tour and, (laughs) (laughs) and I have a great tennis game and I go out for dinner with Chrissy Everett and Martina Navratilova and some of my other favorites and we talk tennis. Well, we so do have you our. Play? Do you play tennis? I do, but I'm, you know, it is just forever a work in progress. And my chances of being on the professional women's tour are probably nil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost certain of it. <laughs> so when you sit on a rock and daydream, you're on the tennis circuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's me. I'm. (laughs) You know, I went to the Indian Wells tennis tournament last March, and a friend of mine who is a professional 
got me a player's pass, which was, for me was like, oh, my God. And so I was able with this player's pass. It was legitimate. It was <clears> – <throat> she actually got the pass from a – you know, players can have, like, two or three people in their entourage or however many, how mm-hmm. famous they are. So I had one of these player passes, and I would sit in this tennis lounge, and I was just, like, a crazy stalker. And I had to sit there and pretend that I was totally cool and that I was just, <laughs> you know, somebody's, like, I don't know, massage therapist or something. I'm sure they all looked at me and thought, oh, oh, whose grandma's there, or, oh, look, so-and-so must have brought her mother along. But I was just in heaven, and I would sit there and try and take these pictures sort of discreetly. I would pretend that I was on my phone, and then I'd snap a photo of someone and send it out to my friends and be like, look who I just saw. I'm two tables away from her. Oh, my God, I'm <laughs> eating lunch next to Simone Halep. Oh, my, you know, it was it was just, I was, I was, that was, that's the closest I've, I am to, like, being a groupie. That, that was it for me. Like, wow. It's like tennis pornography. <laughs> <laughs> it was embarrassing. My friends were embarrassed. Like, are you going to come watch the matches, or are you going to hang out in the players' lounge again? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were hanging out in the lounge? As much as I could, without looking like a, a creepy stalker, Yeah. And so, so what else do you do in your spare time besides tennis? I know you walk your dogs because that's how Sabin and I met you, walking our dogs and seeing you, keeping our dogs a bit away from your dogs. But I know, I'm sorry. I know, I told you I have troubled dogs. They're rescues. I know. They're. they're I know exactly. No, it's right. Okay. It's fine. Then God bless you for doing it. I and mean, these dogs need homes, and you're giving them homes. <laughs> Thank you. Right. I love to go to the movies. I love to read. I'll ride my bike, but not if it's rainy or cold. Um, you know, I I like the, I don't know, I think it's great to live in New York City and to go to the theater, and you just sort of feel like almost everything I'm interested in is here at my fingertips, and it's really, I'm so, so grateful to live here and be among it. So That's great. So any, yeah. we have about two minutes, and I'm, I use some of that for my outro. So do you have any last words? Last words. For this um, show. I know there will be many more words from you in the future, but for this Blog Talk Radio show, do you have any last words? Any last words. I'm working on a new documentary about Code Pink, and they are a women-led peace activist group. They formed after... 9-11, when the then-President George W. Bush began the unnecessary and incredibly damaging war in Iraq. And I think this, which has, which, you know, we continue to live with the consequences of that war, that war that was completely illegal and uncalled for. And this group of women has been actively demonstrating and protesting ever since and they continue to do so and they have a bit of theatricality to them and they wear their pink t-shirts and stand up and protest at all sorts of events and i think at this this time it's needed now more than ever so i am really that's that's my current desire to follow this uh to follow code pink and sort of trace their history. They've been in existence now for 15 years, and I think it's time for them to have a history and a story, and, you know, hopefully well, they'll be an inspiration to others. So I think that's my, I think that's, that takes us up to today. Well, Marky, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate 
Tracy, thank you, and I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for leading us down this road and reminding me of my own first principles. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Okay. So that was the amazing and wonderful Marky Hancock. Tune in next week. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.